Tommy Trout is probably one of the most passionate blokes that I've ever met. And, and I'll just say this and it'll pretty well sum Tommy up. Tommy's whole purpose in life is to increase the life expectancy of people with disabilities by two years. That's what he wants to do. He just wants to nudge the needle by two years. It was pretty crazy. When I first met Tommy, I learned from him that people who are disabled have a significantly lower life expectancy than those who are not disabled. It's around 50-something years of age. Absolutely crazy. And Tom's whole, Tommy's whole goal is to just nudge that bar up a couple of years. He's a phenomenal dude. He runs a company called WeFlex, which I'm invested in. And the reason why I invested in WeFlex is because he's really sharp. His whole team's really sharp. And just the way they're doing business is incredible. Out of this, this is going to be really, really beneficial for anybody who is in startups or wants to run a startup, someone who wants to become more successful, someone wants to find their passion, talent, and actually turn it into a business. Uh, you'll get a lot out of this because Tommy's a super driven dude. He's a really, really charismatic guy and just someone who I think that we can all learn a lot from, from the way that he does both business and life. I hope it helps you. And we are live. Tommy Trout, let's do it. It's good to have you on, man. So what I was thinking, there's there's so many places I wanted to start, but I want to start with a thing that I know absolutely nothing about you is your history working in mental health and with suicide and that sort of area. Can you tell us, man, how did you get into that line of work? So before working in WeFlex, I dabbled in national suicide prevention for an organization called Wesley Life Force, part of Wesley Mission Sydney. Essentially, I had left a role at Carers New South Wales and really didn't know, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just very sick of working in an office. Prior to that, I was always working in the field and community services and the shoulders came up on seek and it was just a lot of national travel, building suicide prevention initiatives in the outback. I was like, okay, I can do that. So went and applied, got the job after like five interviews and I spent a good part of three years travelling around Australia to outback towns, mostly in Northern Territory, Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, going into communities, dead cold, getting a town hall meeting from the local council, speaking to 200 local punters and talking to them about suicide prevention, mental health, opening up, talking, and then recruiting them to become the faces of suicide prevention in their very small local community. Did, did you have any expectations when you set out in that role? And like, and and because I imagine you would have, you'd have to have, but then how did the actuality and the reality line up with those expectations? So any expectations I had were pretty much punted within the first five minutes of actually in the role. So you sort of spend time working in the office and they're prepping you and they're giving you the info like, all right, you go to these towns, here's how it works. And then you go there and it's completely bats off. You go there and within five minutes, someone's yelling at you, you know, during the town hall meeting because they've lost someone recently. They're going through grief and they're really upset and they wanted to know where this was five years ago. And you're trying to talk to them whilst also talking to the 199 other people in that room. And you realise every community is just so insanely different, even ones that are 100Ks apart. You've just got to be a chameleon, fill the town out, get the vibe of the room and just constantly evolve with that town and as the conversations as they happen. So, yeah, preconceptions will be the death of you and that sort of work. Yeah, massive, man. You spent three years doing that. Absolutely. I I lived and breathed suicide prevention in the outback. Yeah, right. And so, so tell us about like suicide in the because we're not allowed to talk about suicide apparently uh, in the media. We can't do it. I don't know if, if I'm bad for talking about it on here, but I feel it's something we need to fucking address. I mean, I don't know when the last time we swept something underneath the rug and it was a good idea. Like, I don't, I don't know if it ever is. Like, yeah. yeah. First of all, am I a moron for talking about so, like suicide here? 
No, if, if anything, we need to do it more. So, you know, like like children seem to think that if you brush something under a rug, it disappears, but it doesn't, you know. Well, governments do um, too, apparently. Yeah, and it, if anything, it festers and it moulds and it gets worse and you, and you don't know where it is and you don't know how multiplying. But, you know, it's been a few years since I've been in that line of work, but essentially it's a silent epidemic happening around Australia. Suicide deaths themselves are around 3,000, but like I was telling to you earlier, there are a lot of deaths that are suspected suicide that aren't noted down the coroner's report as one. So single car accidents, workplace accidents, you know, unique deaths where either the family will fight to have it overturned or it's just misdiagnosed in how it happens. So single car accidents are really popular, especially in the country. And then you go out into the outback, you know, and you're dealing with communities where there's bushfires that happen almost annual. You can set your watch to them. And, you know, you have a guy who will inherit a family farm three, four generations down the line. He gets it. Wildfire absolutely wipes it out. He has subsidies. He has support maybe for like 12 months. But, you know, in farming, it takes years to actually build it back up to a sustainable model level again. And so he's, he's kind of screwed. And he's the one who failed. He has very little support. After 12 months, a lot of the government support can go away. Service providers are stretched, doing the best they can in the regions. And these are country boys who typically have smaller social circles, less support, more isolated. All of it just adds up to deteriorating mental health. And that's when those decisions get made, unfortunately. It seems like that everyone talks about mental health. Like everyone loves to have a fucking banner in their social media and talk yeah. about it. And we well, need to talk. We need more mental health awareness. I'm like, everyone knows it fucking exists, but nobody actually talks about the real things. Like 3,000 people are killing themselves every year. And you think it's double that, actually, if we take oh, into account. That's, that, three, that's, that's, just, that's just one guy's opinion, absolutely not rooted in fact. But yeah, totally. I think so. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, mental health, it, it's a big part of it is you think that we shouldn't talk about it. But really one thing that we know and one thing that I experienced in suicide prevention especially is the worst thing you can do is say nothing. But people are so terrified of talking about it because I'm going to make it worse for you. You know, people overthink it, they become neurotic about it, and there's no conversation that happens. So there was a story about a guy who I was working in a country town and a woman told me this story. He was all set to kill himself. He went in the town to get supplies to do it. When he got to the shop, as he got out of his ute, a friend of his saw him there, said hi, asked him out for a beer. They had a beer together and he didn't kill himself purely because someone asked him how he was. I heard that you were going through a divorce, but let's go get a beer and talk about it. And he didn't kill himself. One conversation happened and it wasn't about his mental health. It wasn't about his suicide. It was asking how he, how he was. A lot of people like to ask you, James, how are you, mate? You'll always tell me good. Are you really going to tell me that you're on a knife's edge? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you. Well, why do you think we do that? Story? Because we're so conditioned. Because when you ask someone, right, and, and I was even talking about this, this the other day with someone, when you ask someone, like, how are you? And they say, oh, not so good today. You're like, I didn't fucking ask for your life story. I just asked, how are you? You know, why do we do that? Yeah, it's an autopilot. Like, it's saying, are you good, right? You know, and you, most people, I know why, I, I say good without thinking about it. It's an absolute pilot response. I'm like, yeah, good. I'm like, oh, wait, I'm not though, actually. And, you know, a lot of people will ask how you are, but they're not prepared for any answer other than good. And if you give them another answer, if you say, I feel shitty, they blow, blow past it, like you said, good anyway. And it's like, well, why'd you ask? You know what I mean? Like, is it for your benefit or mine? You know, yeah. so now I'm actually getting into the habit where I'm asking the people dearest to me and even even starting to do it to people who I don't know that well, I ask, can I get a mental health check-in? Are you okay? And what's the response to that? People are more likely to open up 
Uh, obviously, the, the trend of men saying that they're still fine is obviously a little bit higher than women, which is, you know, a typical male sort of response. But people, when you actually say, no, 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 I'm going to stop. How are you? Are you okay? Give me a mental health check-in. You're giving them a little bit more of a license or permission to talk about it. As opposed to, how are you? That's like just the most, I think it's just like a courtesy. You know what I mean? It's not a real inquiry. I'm just, it's just part of the hello, mm. so to speak. So yeah, I don't know. That's my thoughts. What do you think? About? If I asked you for a mental health check-in, would you actually give me one? Yeah. I'm pretty lucky though. I live in Noosa and I'm in the sun every day and I get to talk with amazing <laughs> people like you. So I don't have anything to complain about yet. But no, I totally would. I actually would. And you're, you're super right. When someone says, hey, how are you? It is an, it's an autopilot response. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. You know, and for me to say that I'm not doing good, it would have to come from somebody who I'm really close with or comfortable with in order to say, you know what? I'm actually fucking depressed. I remember it was actually about nine months ago now. I was just having a fucking shit time. Like I was just super depressed for no fucking reason, like at all. And it was like, Soph was the only person that I told, but everyone else was just like, bullshit facade. <laughs> you know, it was like super like that. And I remember going through and reflecting. I was like, that's super fucked up, isn't it? Because Ooh, yeah. the one time where I actually need to chat with somebody and actually need a little bit of help. And I was very fortunate. I was only down for a few days, but the one time I needed it, I just didn't want anybody near me. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Oh, weird it's conditioning. A it's a vulnerable, soft little spot that you get for those few days. And you're so sensitive and you're so vulnerable to it. You don't want to admit it. You're protecting yourself, but really all you're doing is making it worse for yourself. So yeah, I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And, you know, I think it's about normalizing it is a big part of the conversation. It's just admitting it, you know, but social media is the most toxic environment for that sort of stuff. It's just the ultimate look at me machine. You know, it's a playground for narcissists. You just want to show how great their life is and how awesome everything is. And it doesn't paint a realistic picture. I don't think there's any research done that social media is like good for your mental health. I think it all points to like not great. Do you think there's, there are any good points about social media at all? I think if used in moderation, you can find really cool people doing really cool things, things that can inspire you. You can find those small communities that you love and you like to do. I know I've used social media. I've used Facebook once to find Dungeons & Dragons players, you know, in the local community. That's awesome. It's just, you know, you can find those niche groups and it's great for that. But you see people just mindlessly scrolling for the thing for ages and it's just too much internet for one day for a lot of people. Yeah, dopamine, yeah. man, it fucking Ooh. gets you. How crazy quick. is it? You can spend like, so I, I get rid of the apps on my phone unless I'm going to do something on them specifically, right? Like I literally delete them. But I even find that when I've got them here, because we're all online and we work on that, I'm on it all the fucking time anyway. So I have to be there. But I'll just catch myself just ooh, scrolling, scrolling pointlessly. It's <laughs> like 20 minutes. Oh, shit. Wait, it's like, like fuck, like I've got life to do. Like I've got all this shit to do. And I've spent 20 minutes scrolling over useless crap that hasn't made my life better oh it has not moved the dial forward in one bit but you still keep going back to it i think it's one of those things because it's so digestible it's absolutely built to be digested on the spot as it is right it's small it's bright it's colorful it gives you that quick fix way better than anything else so yeah i think you've just got to actively uh you've got to display the strength discipline and just force yourself or give yourself a time limit. So I now really try and only do it when I'm doing my own thing or for work stuff, but that's pretty much it. Otherwise, totally. but. Speaking of work stuff, let's chat Wee, Wee Flex because this is like fucking cool. Like, <laughs> like, like seriously know. cool. Yeah. Like, like how often do you get a business like Wee Flex where you get to make a business 
that you know how everyone wants to change the world in business. Everyone wants to say, we actually change the world. Well, you're actually doing that. So with that, can we start first of all with you? Like, why do you even care about people who are disabled? Like, why are you so committed to them that you'll actually put your whole life, work your ass off for fuck all money to make it so that people who are disabled get a better life? Yeah, sure. Look, I've been in community services, looking after people with disadvantage one way or another my entire career. I started when I 16, 17 years old, I did volunteer work at my little brother's as teams at Asperger's Social Group. So my little brother, Jackie Boy, he's on the autism spectrum and so was my old man. And, you know, I grew up watching my little brother get bullied in school and I was just the kid who just flew into every bully twice his size every single time I saw it to protect him. But I sort of saw that not everyone is an equal. And I saw and learned over time that the world isn't built for everybody. You know, the world isn't built for people with sensory issues. The world isn't built for people in wheelchairs. And they just have to try and work out how to fit into our world. And so growing up like that, it just really pissed me off. Like it's a white hot blood rage when you, it's your family and it's your little brother, right? And you see that and it's the, you know, the way that it just gets written off a lot of the times as a kid as well. You get that tag, you're autistic. Well, you're one of those and you're that. And you just take on the persona and the uh, reputation of anyone with autism that you see, typically the, the most extreme cases or the worst cases, whether Jack isn't. And so growing up, I grew up in that household, not knowing that it was a different environment or existence than everyone else, you know, with very strict eating rules with my dad and, you know, Jack having very particular about things. I grew up in an autism house. And well, so what was it had, like? Like, can you give us an example of what it's like to grow up in an autism house? The one thing that was really interesting is, is that I've got fuck all conflict skills because I grew up in a house where my dad and my brother couldn't handle people raising their voices, yelling, anger, anything, even healthy stuff, shut down immediately. You weren't allowed to do it. So I'm constantly trying to push everything down and relax everything and avoid conflict like the plague because I was never around it and I was taught that it was just the worst thing imaginable. That's my mum go with that. <laughs> I, think she, I think she liked that herself, you know, so that was pretty much it. You know, and even when they fought, you know, she wasn't allowed to do that and they would go off and do, you know, their own little private meeting, like the car with the, the music on or something like that and we'd be playing Xbox in the other room. And so I grew up in that environment. I grew up where I couldn't, uh, I wasn't allowed. You know, when you're a kid and you like have ice cream and the syrup and you stir it together in a fucking paste, not allowed to do that, not allowed to eat certain foods a certain way, not allowed, you know, it was just, it just annoyed my dad and we couldn't do it. And also I grew up with a dad who was, you know, because he was autistic, he was unwilling, he didn't mean to be, but he could be a complete dick. You know, he had favourites and he literally would tell us who the favourite kid was throughout our childhood. Who was it? Jemima, <laughs> my sister. And all fairness, she's awesome. But, you know, it was like a full ranking system that we all had to live by. You know, he had throat cancer and he had to use a whistle to communicate to us for like six months. Fucking hilarious. So. Really? Not, yeah, absolutely. Oh, dude, dude, stories. Like, I feel like a bag of my dad at the moment, but he's, he's, he's dead, so he can't be upset. But the point is, is that, you know, it's one of those things where he only wore the same, like, three things his entire life. He used to go barefoot everywhere, like, to the school meetings and shit. Like, he was an absolute eccentric, but he was also brilliant. He was one of the guys who revolutionised computer games. So in the late 80s, you know, 80s and 90s when computers were personal computers started being developed and were affordable and accessible to the average public, my dad, who was an avid board game player and a brilliant one, people used to travel to Australia to play him in board games. Which board games? Um, so I'm talking about the hardcore, multi-day, massive maps of Europe games with like small hexes, little cardboard counters, textbooks for rule books, you know, You'd have three guys and three guys over like two days playing 
hard and dad used to just wipe the floor with everyone and guy one guy actually bet dad in this new game the new scenario it's impossible for team a to beat team b and dad said i bet you that i can beat you with that team if you fly to australia and you beat me i'll pay for your entire flight if you lose you've got to eat all the counters he could have picked a better thing to get out of that other than making uh, dad, dad wanted the guy to eat his words essentially so the guy flew over from america played my dad dad beat him and then dad made him hit the counters <laughs> And that was it. The guy, which was really funny. So that's my dad in a nutshell. That's so, awesome. I yeah. love your dad, even though he's not dad, here. That's amazing. He, you know, but he he took those turn-based strategy games and turned them into turn-based computer games. And he was able to create a system where when you play a computer game and you put it on hard mode, the computer's not smarter. It just cheats. It just can do things better and faster than you at, at the same time. Dad had it where it just played better, which was really unheard of. And he was one of the first guys to really develop that. So he was absolutely brilliant in that regard. And it was weird, like at the time, before he died, we were close in playing board games together, but now starting WeFlex, my own business, I'm like connecting to my dad on a whole new level because he was doing what he was passionate about and now I'm doing what I'm passionate about in, a, in our own business. It's really cool. I didn't expect it and it's absolutely overwhelming at times. It's really, really fun. So how did WeFlex come about? So nine years ago, this is the story of WeFlex, which you already know, but I was working in disability support care up in Thornley region in New South Wales, and I was given a client. I was told he's autistic, he's psychotic, he's antisocial, you know, we need you to go and work with this guy. And so I do. You know, no one really wanted to work with this guy. You hear the word psychotic and you're just like, oh, Jesus, I'm not, I don't want to get stabbed today. But I went over to that dude's house and he was just freaking awesome, like a really interesting, smart guy. He used to like chat with NASA people on the computer and stuff like that. But, you know, he lived alone. His family had abandoned him due to cultural reasons and his psychosis. And um, Sorry, what cultural reasons? How does that work? So they sort of had a Middle Eastern heritage, pretty hardcore, and they saw psychosis and the voices being heresy or heretical. Really? Mm -hmm. That's kind of hard to imagine coming from my background. Oh, yeah. yeah it, it, look, I, I don't think it's representative of that culture. I think the parents were themselves looking for a reason to disown him because he was incredibly high maintenance and hard work to them and brought mm -hmm. shame upon their family, I think, which just says more about them than him, in my opinion. Um, but I don't, I, I'm not convinced it's a true reflection of the culture. I think they just suck. And so what happened was is one of the side effects of antipsychotic medication is you just balloon out and wait. And you get really lethargic, you have no sex drive, you get adult acne. I know guys with psychosis who chose psychosis over the medication because the medication sucked that badly. And so my solution was like, I want to take this guy to the local gym because it's on it's on bus line, it's nearby, it's accessible. Why not? Let's just see what happens. You know, I took the guy and he just loved it. More importantly, the gym loved him. They wrapped himself around him, they loved him. Before I knew it, there were eight people with disabilities from my center there training with me every Thursday morning. And I was pairing them up. I was teaching them really basic exercises. They were doing it together. And these guys just became the hub in this gym. And, you know, I remember I was like, I remember when I came out of the bathroom, I saw this massive meathead talking to one of my guys. I'm like, oh, fuck, here we go. So I was just like running over there and I was worried. This guy was just giving him advice and encouraging him. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that would happen, wouldn't I? You know, all the punters who were really into it would love that. And they did. What effect did that have on, on his psychosis? It, he felt connected. He actually had somewhere to be, not just something to do. And it, it brought him a little bit of relief, I'd say. He said that he enjoyed it. it. It wasn't a complete fix, but it made it just easier and nicer for him. It gave him something to do. And when he was engaged, there were less voices. 
is how he described it to me. Really? Um, yeah. Well, engaged in conversation or engaged in training? Just, mate, not sitting down inside his apartment on his own. Well, I mean, it's fucking logical, right? I mean, wouldn't you be hearing voices if you sat in your apartment all day and felt scared to go outside? Dude, I'm in the never-ending apocalypse of the Sydney hellscape at the moment, mm. and I've been here for two months in a studio apartment, you know, and I'm okay, but, like, also not great. And this guy had been living like that for five years. Couldn't imagine it. I, I of course he's going to get psychosis. I absolutely would be in that. And when you've got people, you know, on autism spectrum, they can become very fixated on things, which could all, with no, and if there's no circuit breaker of people, things, breaking it up, that can become, that, that can absolutely develop into some issues. So it, it doesn't surprise. It's a very common, no, it, it is a common dual diagnosis. Anyway, these guys loved it. They were like, oh, I want to go. Their service providers were like, or oh, can you come set up the same group over in the northern beaches of Sydney? I'm like, yep, I can do that. And then my old man passed away. My dad died of incredibly preventable health conditions. I mean, he used to drink between 12, 16 cans of Diet Coke a day, every day for years. No joke. Wow. Wouldn't eat, wouldn't touch vegetables. I mean, he was tough as they come, but he absolutely wrote his body off. Zero, zero exercise, zero nutrition. He couldn't have tried harder to be unhealthy essentially. And it was almost, it was a miracle he lived as long as he did, to be honest with you. And so- How old how, how was he when he passed? Uh, 59, if memory serves. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Um, around that, so, you know, but- That's Jack, pretty close to the national average for somebody with- Disability is about 53 at the moment, you know, but for for the general population, it's closer to 80, 83. So we're at dad's funeral and Jack Jack's breaking down, you know, which was terrible, I, I which really hurt me. But I was like, well, I don't want that to happen to Jack because Jack was going in his footsteps, my little brother. And so we went to get Jack to the gym and we just couldn't find a PT who was suitable for him. Half the PTs felt like it actually wasn't, they weren't legally allowed to do it, like it was out of their scope. Like, oh, no, you need to go see an OT or a physio about that. And then the other ones that were willing just treated Jack like he was a moron. And so it was really out of desperation. I took myself off to do a cert for in fitness, became a PT, trained Jack myself. Loved it. You know, I knew what I wanted to do with my life doing that. And then really Jack's lost about 10 kilos, works out with me a few times a week, does his exercise, makes choices for himself, absolutely kicking goals at the moment. But, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with disability who have really terrible health outcomes, not all of which are attributable to their disability itself. And so I was sort of like, well, nothing's happening here and I don't know why. There's no training for personal trainers to really do anything there. And I waited for like 10 years for that to happen. And I just really got to a point of fuck it and said, I'm just going to do it. Because And it's not because I'm an entrepreneur. It's because I'm just annoyed and very concerned and just want to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's Weflex in a, in a nutshell. That's well, awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing that I, I find really cool, that I, where I train at the moment, I, I train at a place called CrossFit 4566. It's like, I'm not doing CrossFit. Don't worry. I'm, 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 do, I'm doing Olympic lifting. Did group do CrossFit for a little while, and you know what? It's actually not as bad as what I thought it was going to be. But no, I'm doing. I'm doing it Olympic. Just lifting. depends on who's teaching you and what the culture is. There are some half decent ones, but oh my god. Yeah, no, there's some really awesome CrossFit coaches. Actually, some yeah. really, really phenomenal ones. But where I'm training at the moment, we've got this fella who has has Down syndrome, and I remember like everything that I was taught, like all the stigmas and what. I've never really had much connection with guys who've had Down syndrome because of the areas of life that I've been in. I mean, like peak performance and pro bodybuilding is not really an area where you meet you know guys like like that with disability. It's not because it's it's different different ends, right? But the coolest thing I found out that that I met out of that, that I learned out of this and being around him is. 
these guys are just like us. They're the yeah, fucking yeah, same. Yeah. But we're so stigmatized around treating them differently. Like, I fucking love chatting with Eli. I chat with him every session. In fact, I chat oh, yeah. with him more than anybody else in yeah. the gym. He's like, he's a fucking awesome guy. Like, fun to be around and super happy. It's actually... I get more annoyed by neurotypical people than anyone else. They're the ones who fucking Yeah, they're dicks, man. Nice <laughs> ones as well, honestly. So no, I totally get that. Like I always find myself in any reflex event just talking to the athletes, <laughs> talking to the flexes, because I find them way more interesting. And and that's what's really cool about reflex at the moment is that we're really passionate about not just building a business with them, we're building it, building it with them as well as for them. And yeah. We've got so many people with disabilities actively engaging and helping us write stuff and do stuff. It's really coming with them. But having them around and just in the office and supporting us, it, it just absolutely brings the whole thing alive. So, but yeah, you know, you, you don't see, like, you know, I'd ask any listener to think about when was the last time you saw anyone with Down syndrome or maybe in a wheelchair or blind in a gym? Like, tell me that exercise wouldn't benefit them, but they're just not in the gyms, you know? And it's not like there's a whole massive franchise of gyms that are accessible for people and that's why you don't see them. They don't exist either. They're just not in the gyms. And so that was something that just never made sense to me. But why is it? Because it doesn't make sense, man. Even from a, let's, let's go right down to the root of capitalism, right? It doesn't make sense. Like how many people are there that are, that are just like moderately disabled, you know, within a strip, moderately or mildly, mildly disabled in Australia? Uh, I'd say between uh, about 1.4 million, uh, 2.1 million. So that's a massive market that's being totally... Basic capitalists. I'm not even talking about no, no, no. from treating them like human, but basically that's a fucking oh, yeah. massive market. Why does nobody cater to these guys? A lot of them have jobs. I mean, some of the amputation can absolutely have a job. Some of someone is blind or deaf. Like, so it's not like they can't afford it either. And a lot of it, I don't know what it is. And it's funny because, you know, in a weird way, the fitness industry itself, I think is just incredibly fixated. Like, you know, all my brother says, it's actually autistic itself in that it's just obsessed. <laughs> with everything like it just keeps trying to up the ante in the exact same direction like they're just doing the same thing over and over again you know like none of them are thinking about what if we actually market to a whole new demographic like no we're going to go after the exact same people we've been trying to go after for the last you know 50 years but we're just going to go harder at it and then you look at you know ambassadors and influencers and all that garbage you've just got they're just trying to up the ante in the insanity of the exercise and the workout not who they're doing it with like influencers fitness influencers and stuff ages ago which is oh calisthenics is a new thing now you've got people just doing like the most stupidest insane workout things just trying to up the ante on that and it's how just great like, are the booty exercises just it's like accessible chicks are like getting their ass in the exact position to show as much vagina as possible it's <laughs> <laughs> like and then make it into an exercise uh, yeah it's, it's a uh yeah, they're really, I think they've really landed on something in the fitness industry. Sex might sell. After all, I think they're the first, first industry to actually try and use that as a technique to sell me something. Yeah. No, dude, it's like a slight tangent, but you know, you know, it's like I see it's funny because like because I see this shit all the time, like every single day. It's as if like chicks and dudes haven't figured out that they're not the only ones with abs or tits or an ass. And just because you put extra collagen in your lips and made your tits way bigger, it doesn't give you a competitive advantage because everyone can fight. They're the main characters, it. apparently. They're the main characters. Yeah, it's crazy, man. It's like, why, why don't people use more soul? Maybe I'm, maybe this is because I'm too much of a hippie and I've meditated that's what too happens. much. You get into the space and you just see everything through a new lens. Like, I've never looked at some, I've never looked at a hyper fit person on Instagram and be like, oh, I need to get in shape, you know. But when I look at, you know, like those massive before and after photos or, you know, I follow all those I am adaptive pages of people with like no limbs 
still working out harder than me, that's what gets me fired up. Like I'm like, yeah, you know, Chris Nickich, he's the first guy with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman. Mm. Like, hell yeah, that's the kind of thing that gets me revved up. Just seeing some like some himbo or bimbo with big muscles just showing me their stupid workout. It's just garbage on my page, really. Uh, just, I've been there. I've created that fucking garbage before. And, it, and it's, <laughs> it's putrid. You created this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah How many people from the James Cantfield thought have gone on to pollute all timelines of their crap? <laughs> yeah, legit. I'm sorry to every single person who's ever seen my shit. <laughs> There's just no soul to it. I'm just like, 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 if that's what fitness is for you, great. I'm great for you. For me, fitness, I think, and this is where I'm, I'm sure we're in agreement where if you're in that industry and health and well-being, like that broader industry of, you know, trying to make yourself better physically, knowing that there's mental and emotional benefits of it as well. You can't love it if you don't hate it at the exact same time, because for every great operator, there's normally another one who's just absolutely out of order. Either they're just completely full of shit and what they're saying makes no sense or is downright harmful or toxic and counter to what they, they should be saying, you know, but there's so much opportunity there for it to be a real force for good. And I think it's kind of there, but not really. And I'm really hopeful and planning for WeFlex to be one of the forces for good that shows that, you know, fitness is for everybody and everybody type. We already uh, are, man. And yeah. I think the coolest thing, the difference between good and evil is not the advice. You know, one, one thing I learned from this and from studying and being around a lot of really smart people is you can have the best advice in the world, but if you're a fucking cunt, you're still <laughs> a fucking cunt, right? And if you go out and there are loads of people with PhDs and stuff like this who spew out great information, but it's all toxic and it's evil and it's crap and it creates more toxicity. So yeah, okay, cool. You might be right with this way to grow your glutes better than some other person who you disagree with. But the fact you've gone and spewed out so much negativity into the world has negated any positive effect you've had. But then when you compare that with Weflex and with what you guys did, I'm like, that's the reason why I invested in you guys. Because I fucking liked you. I remember like on our first combo when, when oh, you yeah, guys were no, your pitch me. I was like, yeah, whatever, Tommy, I like you, man. Like, you're awesome. Like, don't show me the fucking slide deck. Like, uh, I love you. Like, and people, what you're about. People don't back ideas. They back people at the end of the day, especially with investment. You know, but, and if you don't think that's true, I'll remind you. Do you know, remember the Pet Rock? Yeah. That made millions of dollars. Like, never forget. Someone made millions of dollars selling rocks to people as pets. Just never forget that. And just, I always just, remember that when I'm like, it's not always about the product. <laughs> post Weflex idea. Somebody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah who do, who do so, that, that I really want to talk to you about cap raising, right? So you are not a salesman or not a cap raiser. You are not that by trade. You're not a banker. But how did you go with that? Not, I'd, I'd say in, in a weird way, I'd argue that I am but I've never sold for money. So when I was talking to when I was talking to some of the other advisors, I'm like, well, if I can convince a depressed man to go for a walk with me, that's selling something, right? You know, if I can convince someone in an outback town to be the face of suicide prevention, that's selling something. If I can convince somebody who works in an al- a drug and alcohol clinic where I used to work in methadone reduction, right? The one of those addictive substances on the planet. If I can convince them to stay another day. I've clearly got some ability not to sell, but to actually, you know, sell a vision or, or to influence people. And so it was interesting where I sort of, I feel like I underestimated my own ability to sell going into it. But one thing that we were really passionate about was we don't just want the money, we want the right people to come on board. Because if you're not the right, one, you're not going to get it. But two, you, you need to be all in on this. You need to actually understand what we're trying to do and buy the vision 
because we were selling, we were raising money pre-capital raise, uh, no, sorry, uh, pre-revenue really, we were saying, look, this is the opportunity, this is the idea, this is our belief in it. And we were really selling the vision, selling the dream. And you know, but we, if for that to work, we need that community, all kinds of people around the table helping us build it. And that was something that we were looking at. And that's something that we got. We ended up with the right people and the right amount of money to really launch this thing on the right foot. And that's exactly what's happened. So, you know, the, the cat raise is crazy. It, I didn't understand or appreciate how personal it was going to be. Even with a career where I've always tried to separate church and state, when I go home, I'm caveman. I don't care if work burns down. It's, it's separate to me. When you're putting your own baby in front of people, bearing your soul, telling your own life family story, and to some extent trying to commoditize your own family story to get the point across and, you know, to try and raise money. It's incredibly personal. And when someone is sort of like, no, even if they're sweet about it, that is like, no, it's just pre-revenue is not for me, but next time you do a raise, let me know because I love you, but just not enough at the moment. It's so, it's impossible not to take that to heart. You know, I've actually got a list near my desk of all the people who invested in it. And I just look at it and remind myself of the people who have invested in me and believe in me. I've also got the list of people who didn't invest. And I'm like, I'm going to get you next time. No one's getting off this train. Like, you know, you're getting on eventually. So, yeah, it, it was a real journey, dude. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it was really oh, no. It was 35 pitches in like one month. It was like at least one a day, sometimes two a day. And you're just getting your hopes up. You're going in and you're just with people who will tell you to your face, no. And, you know, it, it can be hard because it's very personal. And I was at a point when I was raising where I left work in July 1st last year and I was living on savings and the goodwill of my friends for a, a whole year, 12 months, living on nothing, like $2 loaves of bread, vegetables, things on sale. That was my existence for 12 months. I was at a point when I was raising where I had about one or two months of liquidity left before I'd be homeless. And I'm in there trying to raise money for this thing but not feel pressured, not be stressed out, still wanting to have the right people on board. And it's really terrifying because you're like, if this doesn't go through, I don't know what's going to happen. And I really wanted to do the whole founder entrepreneur thing without that really cliche experience, but I couldn't. It's just how it is. <laughs> so yeah, but you know, we got there in the end and I'm grateful for that. But my first paycheck came about two days before I was literally going to have no money in my account. So what did you do? So like one of the things in sales that we talk about is commission breath, right? Yeah. Where, you know, people can fucking smell when you're hunting for commission <laughs> yeah. and you're hunting for a dollar because you're broke and you got to yeah. do it. How did you keep yourself not desperate? How did you keep yourself on your A game while living off $2 loaves of bread and knowing that you've got fuck all time before you're out in the street homeless? Okay, this is why I'm very weird. So, you know, you can convince yourself of things. You can create belief systems for yourself totally. as a crutch. So, for example, I'm an avid freediver. I love freediving. I love holding my breath, going underwater, feeling connected to the ocean, and I love it. I'm always terrified of sharks, right? And it's a terrifying fear that will stop me from going in. You know when you have that fear thought right before you go in and you stop? You either don't do it or you, like, beat your head and go like the shallow end. One thing I always told myself, and it's a complete lie, but I just say, I'm Aquaman. The ocean is my home. No one and no thing can ever harm me when I'm in it. It's a complete bullshit, but I convince myself of it every time. And then I go in and have a great time. When I'm going out to those investor meetings, I was literally convincing myself that this was destiny and it was just meant to be. And all I had to do was honestly lay out the vision, my belief, and who I am as a person, warts and all, to people and that they would come. I just convinced myself of it, to be honest with you. I don't know if that was a sound strategy or not, but that but was it worked. It, it worked. So, you know, but that was really how I went about it. 
I just convinced myself that it was meant to happen. Did, did you get anxiety? Did you yeah. get any of those things? Like, because the, the clock was ticking on you, right? Like, what did you get? Really was like? I was, you know, I don't have a car and it was COVID and we were meeting in the city half the time. I'm like doing three or four pitches in one day and I'm catching the bus home at 10 p.m. and it's late and I've got all this work to do. And I'm just like, I wouldn't have this problem if I just had my own I'd working for someone. I wouldn't be doing this. Half the time when you're an entrepreneur, I'm not an entrepreneur, but half the time when you'd be doing your own business, you you spend half the time screaming into the void, doing things that you have no idea if they're going to help, if they're doing anything. I mean, moving the dial. Put it this way, a really good friend of mine, she recently had her first kid and I was able to visit right before lockdown. And it was funny because my mate, whose wife it is, he was like, but I heard you talking about your business and I heard her talking about the baby. I couldn't tell who was talking about what because it's the exact same conversation. Oh my God, I'm always tired. I'm always putting so much effort into this thing. I don't know if I'm doing a good job or not. I'm just always tired, but I always feel guilty when I'm not doing things with it. It's just this complete roller coaster, you know? And so you've just got to believe in the vision and remember why you're doing it. And I think for me, that was easy because WeFlex is not about me. It's about trying to bring support to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, you know, with disability and helping them discover the joys and benefits of exercise. I reminded myself of my brother, of my dad, people, you know, the original guys I worked with 10 years ago. I reminded myself that that's not changed. They're still there. There's still people with who live in complete isolation on their own with nothing to do who would love this. So it's not about me. It became about them. We, when, we, when we coach our guys, one of the key things we do right at the start is we do something called the summit. And on the summit is where we go through and we map out exactly where you want to be and we visualize it so crystal clear. Like I was going to ask you before, like, why didn't you just quit? Like, why don't you say fuck it? But it's pretty obvious now is because it was not about you anymore. Yeah, no. It's you're just a part of this thing. You're a part of this vision. You're part of this movement. And you cannot physically stop when you have it so crystal clear in your head exactly what you got to do. You've got your summit mapped out. You have all the values that are integral to you, everything that's important to you. You've got the roadmap there. You know what you got to do. You just got to put keep putting one foot in front of the other, right? And then yep. you're unstoppable. Yeah. So one thing that so with us, we've realized that we know exactly where we want to go and we know what it looks like, but we're the first to do it. So we're the ones who've got to chart that path. You know what I mean? So we're the ones who walk into all the bushes, you know, and get hit in the head and fall down the traps, you know, which is great, you know, no risk it, no biscuit. And and we know that we'll be the ones who get the rewards for doing it, you know, but we want to make that, we want to be the ones who start it. There's an insane amount of work to do. We've realized that, but everything we do and every bit of work we do leads us closer to it and also reaffirms it for us as well. We Every day we get more convinced of what we're doing and why we're doing it. How do you know you're doing a good job? Well, for starters, you know, we're bringing on more and more clients with disabilities and I'm just training them online. And every session I do, the carer or the parent or the person themselves refers us to somebody else. We only wanted 10 clients initially just to map out our processes and our resources and work it out before we can scale. Within two weeks, we had 50 people and we're not marketing. We're actually trying to hide at the moment just to get these things done before we get demand. So sorry, so you have a 100, you have close to 100% referral rate. Yeah, easy. That's that's pretty good, hey? Some, like, of them, some of them are like to the power of three. You're like, we've got one, you know, we had like one group that were like, you know, well, we'll start with 30 because you came so highly recommended by this person. But we've also got mailing lists of hundreds that we support in other ways. So I think we'd love this as well. Can we refer you to them as well? We've had to say, just wait. Or can we plan it for like September or October when we're ready for it? So it's impossible for me to have any doubt about this thing because the rate at which people are clamoring for it and wanting it 
And the number of, and it's not just that end. PTs are loving the idea. So, you know, Reflex's model is the idea that we connect people with a disability to a personal trainer. That's a personal trainer that we've selected, onboarded, and we provide them with training to meet the unique needs of the client that we're matching them with. But more than that, the training that they get has been co-designed by the people that they're working with. You know, so at the moment we're working on like nine different modules now, which is growing. One of them is going to be for people who are capital D deaf, and we're going to do a co-design session with five, 10 people who work out who are capital D deaf. So sorry, when you say co-design session, you're referring to like you're actually getting in these guys who are capital D deaf and they're actually helping you build the course to train them. Yep. We get them in a room for two hours. We pay them for that. And we actually basically like market research, but around the program, we say, okay, as what would stop you from seeing a PT? Have you ever had a PT before? What did you like about the one that you did have? What's a great way to piss you off? What's a great way to lose you as a client? You know what I mean? What can I do to make you feel welcome? What's stopping you from the gym? You know, and sometimes it's as simple as just learning an Auslan sign. So like, this is Auslan for hello, nice to meet you. Took me five seconds to learn that. And I can now use that as a way to make people who are capital D deaf Auslan speakers feel welcome and feel good and build that rapport immediately. And so that's the training. So, but PTs who have always felt so scared, so unconfident, uncomfortable, not sure what to do, don't want to make it worse. They're being given all these tools to do what they kind of want to do. You know, so when you talk about why hasn't this happened yet, there's just no one's brokered that meeting, brought them together. And that's really what Weflex is looking to do is just do it in a way where it's fun, but it's gentle and it's supportive. And we foster that change because, like we said, there are good operators and bad operators. There's a lot of great PTs out there who I think will just do an amazing job and will get an incredible experience out of it. Like my background, my personal training has only ever been with people who have a disability. But I had to do hours during my Cert 4 to get the Cert 4 qualification. And I had my first mainstream experience. Like, it sucks. You just got people showing up late, drunk, you know, hungover, don't show up at all, put in half-assed effort, they're complaining. And you know they're just going to go hit the town that night and just absolutely undo everything. Whereas I got people on the with a disability and they were highlight of their week, circled in their calendar. They just couldn't wait. You know what I mean? And they just... I, I had to kick them out after the hour because they just wanted to keep going and they did they did every bit of homework I ever gave them. It just absolutely made their day and it made mine. And I was like, that's that's the feeling I want as a PT, that knowing that I'm really making a difference in someone's life. It's one of the few businesses where you actually, you make money, you get paid out of this, and then you actually go home with that feeling of satisfaction. It was, it was the same as what I, what I talked with, with our guys about. It's like sure. every time you talk with somebody and they're like, dude, like you can, you can see how much of an effect it's had. Mm-hmm. It's the coolest thing. And then the awesome thing out of that is it's not just like your athletes or your flexes. I love the term flexes, by the yeah, way. Like, yeah. I, I, I like that way better than athletes, by the way. Yeah. But your flexes, when they go home, they're then the different person for their whole family. And so the multiplier effect keeps kicking oh, on yeah. and kicking on. And, and the work that we're doing so far all agrees with that. It seems to be what's happening. And, and one thing that we're really passionate about is we're a business, we're not a charity because we don't see this work as charitable. We hate that attitude that, oh, you know, Mr. PT, you should do this for free or do it for cheap because look at that poor guy, which is absolute bullshit. We're like, we're about to give you the best client you've ever had. You know what I mean? And we're going to train you for it and you're going to be thanking us for it later. And we've also, you know, and, and so that's why we flex it. The way that we market, the way that we talk about it, we don't come from a savior complex. We don't have a pity attitude. We're like, there are some amazing athletes that we've never seen before 
in this group, we've got incredible abilities that we just haven't witnessed before. You know, I've trained like my little brother who's on the spectrum. If you teach him to do something right once, he does it like that forever. His ability to recall and remember stuff, he does it perfectly for the rest of his life. It's such a treat to work with, you know, in that regard. And so it's it's just really cool the way that we're sort of being able to build this business. And it's a bit of a reflection of me. It's just that fuck that Mickey Mouse marketing sort of bullcrap, you know. And we don't we don't believe that they're special. We're actually one of our mottos is you're not special. You're just like everyone else. I you're fucking love that, man. Special. No. And I, so I put it to you, like one thing that's become clear to us when we talk to families is that a lot of parents, they don't want their kids to have a very different special treatment. They want to be treated like everybody else. All I want is for my kid to go to the soccer club just like I did, play just like I did. All I want is for my kid to have the same school experience I did. And so what Weeflex is trying to do is saying they're going to get the exact same service they would, that PT would deliver regardless. PT just has a better toolkit now to meet their unique needs. I mean, you've got hundreds of coaching clients. They've all got different unique needs. You get better and you're able to meet their needs. You know how to tailor your sessions to each person. Same with our PTs. We want them just to have that toolkit to be able to engage and be able to just go with it and enjoy it. You know, we want to create that environment. So why is it that you didn't want to go down? Because one thing that a lot of people will do, a lot of us do, is we we treat people as special because we feel like we should give pity or stuff like that. Yeah. Like, why is it that you deliberately don't do that? Because it's demeaning and it's othering. So, James, would you like to be called special from now on and we'll all treat you special and we'll put special in front of all your titles and we'll make sure that you don't get any bullshit from any of your friends, you don't get anything close to ribbing or being made fun of. We'll just be stoked on you forever. Would you like that? No, fuck no, I'd hate it. Oh, why not? It's awesome. Like, it's special. Wouldn't you want that? Yeah, no, no, I wouldn't. I'd ha- I would no, actually hate that. It sucks. Yeah, you would hate it. So one thing that we grew up with is I'm one of five. My family are just, we're brutal. Like, our love language is bullying, essentially. Like, <laughs> all we're doing is roasting each other at all times. And we used to roast Jack all the time. We used to make so many inappropriate jokes about his autism, about his ADHD, and Jack's giving it back, you know, and it was only as an adult I actually asked him about it. I was like, were we bad people? Was that okay? He goes, no, it was awesome because you included me. If I was the only one you weren't allowed to make fun of, it would have made me feel like shit. The fact that you were making fun of me about things I can't control and I'm making fun of things that you can't control, that's equality. That's equity. That's inclusion. So why the fuck do you think that we're trained so differently? And you look at this whole woke movement and all that bullshit that's happening at the moment. Why are we being encouraged to treat people differently based on the color of their skin, based on, what do you call it, the, the neuro, neurotype or the… the, the neurotypical. Yeah, neurotypical. It's not yeah. a bad term. I actually don't mind the term neurotypical because it's an easy way to describe a lot of different things. So it's pretty useful. But yeah, like, like there is a lot of kids' gloves. There's a lot of… Obviously, my opinions are my own and not those of reflexes. But for me personally, you know, I think there's a real, a lot of people in that space, one, they have very little experience themselves with disability. You know what I mean? Like, I don't get much criticism, but any criticism I have gotten in my life has come from someone who has no experience or exposure to it. You know what I mean? Like, everyone, all my clients with disabilities, they want to see me every week, right? And I treat them normally. So that's a great thing. We've done co-design sessions and they say, just treat us normally. So that's why I'm doing that. But a lot of people who like to make a big show and dance about it, they're typically just trying to boost themselves up. It becomes a real vanity project or a way that they can have their own sense of power and put it on you. If you use the word Down syndrome people instead of people with Down syndrome, I can make you feel like shit for it and talk to you about it. Like it achieves nothing, but I create this power dynamic. Yeah, but I feel good. 
It's, it's, <laughs> just, it's just like those, um, you, you know, with all the bullshit that's going on in Afghanistan at the moment, you see all these um, people on Instagram, like taking a selfie in lingerie and then saying, hashtag pray for Afghanistan. Or there's some guy just like looking pensively into the distance, hashtag pray for Afghanistan. It's like that same bullshit vanity crap that means it's absolutely soulless. Virtue signaling. Yeah, it's empty calories. Yeah. But also, I ask you, how many of them do you think actually get down and pray? Donuts, cinnamons. <laughs> no. Exactly. So, like, they're, they're actually lying as well. So, it's complete bullcrap, honestly. It's, um, so, you know, for me, I think it's about well, the real ones know, you know what I mean? And I, I would rather, we, we're not interested in making a show and dance. We're more interested in doing the work and just getting in there. So, you know, you guys can hashtag or do your, your inspirational porn posts all you want. We're going to build a tech solution that's going to connect people with disabilities to PTs and upskill that and create systemic change, a business case for inclusion. That's that's my hashtag or that's my pray for change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so much more meaningful action and just like you know, um, one of one of our clients, Marcus. I've got to introduce you, to Marcus. You'll you'll love him. I'm yeah. actually chatting with him after you. But one of the things he says is like action talks and bullshit walks. Yeah, and it's like so fucking true. It's like action's the only thing that matters. Like you can run your mouth, you can hashtag, you can do whatever the fuck you want, you can do any of that crap but it doesn't make any change. And in the end of the day, the only thing that matters is your actions, not your words. And look, a lot of the times people use words as a way to master inaction. You know what I mean? It's the way that I feel like I'm doing something when you're doing absolutely nothing. You know what I mean? So I was very lucky. My aunt, who I look after at the moment, you know, she was a leader of the women's liberation movement during the 70s and 80s. A badass woman, you know, and she's given me an absolute catalogue of feminist literature to read about the women's liberation movement. It's really interesting. I'm really enjoying it. And I'm coming to her with questions about all this sort of stuff. And she has the same question for me every time. Okay, that's all going good, Tom, but what are you going to do about it? Like, you can talk, but what are you going to do? So whenever anyone has anything to say about it, I always ask, what are you going to do about it? And that just leave them on that. That's just how I leave it now. Have you come across with any issues yet? And also in the future, do you anticipate any issues with people talking about what you're doing and speaking negatively and causing you issues with you being able to pursue your vision? I haven't experienced it yet. But, you know, if it happens, we'll just, you know, stand in our truth and just keep doing what we're doing. Ultimately, if our customers are happy, we're happy. And that's what we're there, we're there to serve. We're not there to make someone feel good about themselves without a support people with disabilities get more active and into the gym we want to be their fitness brand like their nike their brand what they identify with that has their back and absolutely loves what they're about so i'm so pumped (laughs) yeah yeah it's awesome like you know it's it's just a real privilege for me to be able to you know I've, i've had a lot of moments of just like pure almost overwhelming gratuity over the life that I get to live now. It's almost surreal. Like it feels like I've completely transcended universes from one to another. The space that I'm in now, it couldn't be further from where I was 15 months ago. Absolutely. It's absolutely surreal for me. And you know, the fact that I get to do what I'm meant to do with the support with amazing people around me, it's an absolute treat. Who have been the people who have had the most guiding influence over you? So a few people. So firstly, Larry Fingelson known Larry for a few years and he's always been very kind and sweet to me and he, he he understood my vision. So every year we used to have a professional chat around projects that were aligned and, you know, he asked me about myself. I said, oh, this is something that I want to do and I'm slowly bubbling away on it. But honestly, I wasn't really doing much on it. So I, mean, I, I was talking and not doing, so to speak. And he said, well, you know, he wants a growth project, which is an incubator. It's a program. Let's go do that. And I was like, okay, fine. I applied for it. They had to break the rules to let me in. And it was a year-long just, you know. So what's the growth project? It was a personal development program for charity leaders. 
And even though I was social enterprise, they said, oh, look, you're kind of a bit of both. You're both a business leader and a charity leader who they pair together. So we'll let you come in as a utility player, just be an extra body. Great, take that. You know, and I did that. And I started working away on the business and and I was meeting people there and it just started to form in my head. I In May, I experienced a, a, a bit of a depressive episode, closer to a nervous breakdown, really. I'd say about 16 years in the making, working in really hardcore community services programs with very little self-care, very little holiday periods, toxic relationships that I created for myself. Like, you know, and I had a complete break and I, I spent two weeks untethered to the planet. And then I found my foot, footing, sorry, and realized I don't really, you know, in that space, I was like, I don't really care anymore. I'm just going to go for it. And I, I signed a resignation letter for work the next day, started July 1. Instead of four months break, which I was going to get, first meeting, Larry Fingleson grabs me into a meeting with a few other amazing gentlemen named uh, Benji Kroetz and Anthony Chesler. And we mapped out my idea on the whiteboard of the whiteboard of destiny. A few hours later, they're like, there's something there. Go talk to this person about it. And the same way that I built the suicide prevention charities, I built Weflex, 50 coffees. You have a coffee with someone and you lay it out in front of them. You're not precious about it. You're not defensive over your idea. I spent about nine months asking people why I shouldn't do it, telling me why this is a bad idea. Sink my boat. Like, just put me out of my misery. What am I missing? And what that means is, is that, one, you get honest feedback. Two, you protect yourself from future disappointment. But over time, I begin to realise where the strengths were, what the model was over time. And before I knew it, I had 50 coffees, met 50 people who felt like they could actually contribute to the vision and the mission themselves. They weren't trying to cater to my ego or be a yes man for me. They were allowed to be critical, which creates a lot of trust because it's vulnerability on my point. And I just came across one amazing person after another amazing person. Like, you know, in September, I had the benefit of meeting a man named David Sexton, who's the now CEO of WeFlex. And he's just one of the the best things that's ever happened to me, honestly, an incredibly inspiring, interesting, considerate CEO. And, you know, he and me have a great dynamic because I've realized I'm not a CEO and I don't want to be a CEO. It's a terrible job. I'd never want it. Um, Let's discuss that, actually. Yeah. Uh, have you got time? Always time for you, James. Right. I got to have a piss. We're right. two minute drink break and then we'll come back and we'll hit that because I really want to discuss the difference between a visionary and a CEO. Deal. All right. So, so the difference between a CEO and visionary. Why? And that's like one of the hard... So I'm in that process now of stepping away and looking at getting a CEO in and doing that myself. And it's tough. Mate, it's like, best decision you'll ever make. Oh my yeah. God. So why? Why? Like run me through like, what? why did you decide that you're, you're a visionary and not a CEO? So I was really fortunate. So before this role, my last job was working for an organization called The Funding Network. And my job essentially, they're a live crowdfunding organization, brilliant organization. And my job was to sort of select the grassroots not-for-profits to put in front of the big end of town for donations, right? And so I ran due diligence on hundreds of charities every year and stayed in line with them and saw how they grew. And what I learned was is that just because you're a founder doesn't mean that you're a CEO. And just because you started your organisation doesn't mean that you should lead it. You know, or there's different ways that you can lead it. Like I saw so many great charities absolutely get destroyed by the founder because the founder just didn't know their own limitations. Or when you go through the startup phase, right, you can catch on to the zeitgeist and you can be the bit of a nit kid and you can get these opportunities and you just think you're the bee's knees. And then you just think that you're a CEO as well because you want that control because it's your baby. And then what happens is that the CEO job doesn't, doesn't care about you and it's the same job wherever you go. 
You know what I mean? You need to be insanely organized and diligent and conscientious and be able to manage people. Like it's a genetic code. Some people are CEOs, some people aren't. They're like 0.2% of the population, the CEOs. You know what I mean? Like David Saxon is a CEO, like to his bones. I'm not. Like I'm not that organized. I'm temperamental. I'm and, and I, I just don't work that well managing other people. And so, so what did you look for? Like before you, like, obviously you've, you've got David now and he's like, perfect. But like, what did you want in your CEO? To be honest with you, I didn't have a list at all. I knew that I needed somebody and I knew I'd know him if I saw him. One of the big things that happened with me and David is obviously we got along personally, which was great. I saw him stand up for himself in a few meetings. You know, there were a few meetings that were tough and I saw him with absolute grace and decorum be able to stand up for himself and just have a backbone, you know, steel backbone. And I was like, I like this guy because I know that he'll he he can stand his own. So he had courage. He has values, which mean a lot to me as well. Like I trust that he'll make the right decision, even if it's not convenient. But you know, we had, also we had a meeting where we were talking about how we're going to work together, if we're going to work together, and we kind of just drew out all the things I like doing, all the things he liked doing, like an opposite. So I was like, how good is that? You know, all the things that just give me hives are things that he absolutely loves doing, or he's just very good at. And so. It was, it was, I felt guilty. I was carving out this dream role for myself. And I was like, but, oh, no, but, you know, I should be doing more of the boring stuff because, you know, it's my business and I need to be more accountable. And he's like, no, I'll do that. I'm like, okay, yes, sweet. No gives you backsies, no returns. This is the deal. And it's, it's hard, but for me, it's easier than it's going to be for you because I never was the CEO. I was interim CEO, sure, but I didn't spend years in that role and then have to let go of it. I had a pretty good understanding from the beginning. My best contribution to WeFlex is in a founder role, in an ambassador role, in the working one year ahead of the business kind of role. He's the organized guy who can get stuff done. And that's what we need. I get stuff done, he gets it done. There's a there's a big, big difference. Hey, it's like you've got to have it's a totally different personality type though to lead the business as opposed to run it. It's a genetic thing. I don't know what it is, but there's just a type. That just are meant to do it, you know. And I know well, David- we're not meant to. We're not meant to be project managing. Like, could you? I would. I would fucking oh, hate my life know. if I was project managing. Yeah. And if anyone has ever managed me in their career knows that I'm just a nightmare with that as well, you know. And so for me, it became. It was hard because you know you've got people coming along. Your mission. It's your business. It's your vision. Getting rid of any responsibility, you can feel guilty for doing it or feel like you're copping out or, you know what I mean, you, you, you're sort of not all in on it. But really all you're doing is just you need to give people real roles to show that you're serious about growing this. Like I couldn't say WeFlex is not about me and not relinquish any kind of power at all. Mm-hmm. You've got to be vulnerable and you've just got to be ready for people to come in and to take the reins with you. You know, like a big thing for me was saying, not just is David the CEO, I answer to him. He's my boss. He's not my boss and he'll hate me saying that. But the point is, is that I answer to him. I'm, I'm his direct report. How and was I, that adjustment? Easy. I was glad really? to do it. it was, for me, it was easy. I was glad to do it because, once again, I know that in any business, I don't care. I don't even need to look at your business plan to know that you are the biggest risk to your business at all times. If it's your name or if it's your, your business or whatever, Founders are almost always the biggest risk because I could sink WeFlex today if I really wanted to. You know what I mean? It faster than anything else could. So founders are the biggest risk, and so you need to de- you need to mitigate that risk immediately. So, so why that. do you say founders are the biggest risk? Because so in a lot of businesses, right? You have periods of growth. It's taken off because you're the founder. You've got the story. You've got this idea. Aren't you great? Right? 
but that doesn't last forever. You need to start delivering and you need to start doing great work. The majority of businesses don't thrive when one person has all the control and all the power and you can't simultaneously do that and try and bring in all the stakeholders that you need for the business to be successful and to sustain growth. If I wanted to grow a business that's going to help people, I need an insanely amazing, talented group of stakeholders. I need tech experts. I need fitness experts. I need disability advocates. I need all that. They're not going to work for me if everything is all about me and I'm in control and I'm the power and I'm the center point. And I'm setting myself up to fail because more than one person's amount of work. I couldn't, no one could do that in a day. You know what I mean? So you're divvying up the work. But if they see that it's not about you, it's about the mission and you're proving it by actually letting go of some of the stuff, then they will actually, it, it, it gives them greater buy-in. You know what I mean? Like no one has any concerns about my ego or control freakery in Weflex because they know that I want to do the role that I'm good at and I want to share the power and share the responsibility because then you share the ownership and you share the wins. You know what I mean? Like if you join a company and the guy would really ever let you in the tent, your heart's not going to be in it. You want to create a community. You want to create that group and it has to not be about me and I don't want it to. And I think that's one of the ways that I've achieved that. And it takes the stress off you eventually. You'll get to a point where you'll just be so happy you've got a CEO doing that work for you. When you're relaxing, watching TV or doing something at 7 or 8 p.m. and he's still working away sending emails, you're just like, it's good. We, we put work. in a, in a GM, the general manager named Sandra, and she is amazing. It's like so good at implementing everything I suck at. Like, yeah. I, and so good at doing that. And then we've just gone through and we've implemented like another th- area. We've got like a company we're brought in for like head of sales and uh, like managing all the sales and marketing. Now I don't do that either. And I can just focus on my baby, which is like doing this, like talk, like I finally got to do a fucking podcast. Like I've been wanting to do this because I love this. I love talking. Like I, I get so much out of these chats. Yeah, like, yeah. I learned so much. It's my growth has just gone through the roof since doing this. I'm bang, I'm banging out like five interviews a week because I fucking love it. And I love talking, love learning. Like this is my jam. But then I also get to teach my guys more. Like I get to upskill. We get to work on the product. Like I'm just going through. You're ahead of the business. You're working ahead of it. One year of the business, laying the framework that they'll build on. Yeah. And we've like, we literally like doubled, we've doubled our growth rate in the last couple of months just since implementing a few key things and freeing me up. We're now. We're delivering better than ever. Our retention rates are better than ever. Our referral rates are better than ever. Like every indicator for us delivering a superior product is like up since I let go and stop trying to control everything. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's it's a fallacy anyway. But that's that's the real risk that found us up. Because imagine if you didn't imagine if you didn't bring on a GM or your GM wasn't allowed to really have any real say. Imagine if there was no CEO, like no offense, but you're not good enough to maintain growth forever, you being in charge. Like, no one is. You're just setting it up to fail. So one thing that I think, I did a, I did an interview with Sydney Uni on Monday and they were about entrepreneurship, which is a word I'm uncomfortable with, but they sort of said, you know, what's the best quality or investment an entrepreneur can make? And I said, self-awareness. Throughout my career, I've had to do a lot of counselling because of the nature of the work that I've done. When I went through my bad patch last year, I saw a lot of counselling with a guy that I've known for a long time. And self-awareness really leads you to believe that you understand where your limitations are. I know there are so many things I want to do that I suck at. And professionally as well, I want to be in charge of this, even though I have no ability to deliver on it. I just want to be good at it, but I'm not. And you realize, well, is it about my ego or is it about being effective? I need to give up. I'm not going to be good with numbers. I want to be good with numbers so bad. I want to be in charge of money so goddamn bad because I think I'm good at it, but I'm just not. And letting go and just accepting that you're not that guy. You know what I mean? 
one, you're not going to fuck up your finances and ruin your business and then try and save it because you just didn't know what you're doing or you overestimated yourself. But if you give that over to someone and say, I want you to have full control, this is now your baby, they've still got better buy-in now. And it's like, oh, great, okay, I'm in charge of this and he's trusting me with his baby to do this. I really want to deliver for him because he didn't have to do that. He could have been on top of me somehow. He's giving it. You know what I mean? Mm, totally. I found it the most freeing experience ever. Yeah. Like when like I, I don't look at our PL unless I'm told I need to look at it. I don't look at any of those numbers unless I'm told that I need to. And it's like it's the most freeing, awesome thing to just give up that response. But it had it had came with a massive identity shift too. Like one of the things that that I actually coach a lot of other guys on is how to step the fuck back from being that guy because you know how like each business has phases you're not right each business has phases like someone who's great at growing a business from zero to 100k like amazing at doing that often won't be great by going 100 to seven figures right at some point you're going to stop it you're you're the block you cap it open it up unless you get the fuck out of the way. And that's one of the biggest key things, but it's also like, it's, it's really quite amazing. I'm working with a, with a company at the moment and they're probably one of the funnest companies I've ever worked with in my life. I coach a lot of their, their higher ups. And one of the things we're working on at the moment is for the owner of the business to figure out like what his true purpose is. Cause he's built this awesome business. They do a brilliant, brilliant job, but he's now figuring out his whole purpose. And it's like a whole identity thing. So how did you find your identity? Like you as the, the founder of it and the visionary, how did you step into your role and how did you create your role when you've just relinquished you being CEO and captain of the ship? So a big part of it was there's a level of, you know, like like any first-time parent, there's a lot of guilt around giving up stuff because it feels like you're not being responsible for your business. I'm bringing these people in and now I'm not even going to take responsibility for it. You know, there's a real guilt thing around it. And, you know, as you know, if you go on any kind of social media, the founder hustle bullshit that just that the marketing around that just makes me sick. Like, Why? Oh, just just the, like, the people, like, I only slept three hours last night because I'm powering through. You know, if you sleep more than four hours, you're a coward. I did my fifth workout for the day before I signed up this deal. And it's like, it's just absolute nonsense. You know what I mean? Like all people talk about is just their success and it's just, and everywhere you go, you just see people who are crushing it in business and telling you all about it. You know, like if, I'm, if I was worth tens of millions of dollars, I wouldn't be buying YouTube ads trying to tell people about it. I'd just be enjoying my money and relaxing, you know, but it's sort of like a lot of pressure. You see that and you think that you should be crushing it like that and you should be that whole unicorn, under 30, founder, CEO, killing it, nothing you can't do, aren't you amazing? But those that do exist, they're the exception, not the rule. You have to accept that you're the rule and actually just make your life easier and just realise that most days are going to be really hard. You've got to do them. But for me, with the CEO and the founder thing, I, I sort of had to give up. And I was like, well, where can I add the greatest value? What am I really good at? What role could I play that's best suited to me? And that was that conversation I had with David. We sat down and we sort of worked out where I lend value. And it's awesome because he's got ownership of his stuff. I've got ownership of my stuff. We're both good at what we do. It works in tandem. You know, and it means that I get to do work that I'm, I like to do and I'm good at. And I'm not sabotaging the business by thinking that I'm good at it. There's deliverables that I know I can I can do, and it's it just is so much nicer, and it's great because you get you kick better goals, you do better, and you feel better about yourself because of it. What brings you the most joy about what you do? Working with clients, hands down. Not like working one on one. 
yeah, fuck yeah, it's the best. How does that fit in though? Because as as you as you're scaling, you're going to bring you're going to be like let's be honest, yeah. bring on pretty much everyone, yeah. everyone with a disability within Australia is eventually that wants to get fit is going to work with WeFlex, right? This is where I'm. This is where I'm going to be the risk to the business because I want to work with every single one of them and just do this for the rest of my life. But you know. I can't, and there's bigger fish to fry, and I need to start trusting my the PTs to do the work. And I know the PTs will be amazing at it. It's just hard to let go because, one, there's so much fun. I just don't want to not do that forever. But So what we've agreed is that we've got a bit of a deal. I'm allowed to have, like, up to five or six weekly clients that are like my squad that I can work with as much as I want, and that's it. And everything else goes out, you know, that that's the, that's the cup and it flows out after that. So... You know, I was the same, man. It's funny. I, I was managing 250 clients at once by myself. <laughs> Funnily fan. enough, I burnt out and tanked yeah. my business, right? It's about six years ago now, I think it was. I think it was around that, something like that. But yeah, I was managing, I said, I had 150, 250 clients, like a stupid number. No CRM, no automation, nothing. Just like a manual, <laughs> like hustle. Yeah, dude, it was it was. You had 250 hostages by the sounds of it. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was nuts, man. I remember doing that, but I was talking with with, with Rob, 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 and uh, Rob Hustler about it, and he's like, "Mate, it's like you've got to go and you've got to get somebody on to help you and do it." But it's the hardest thing to let go, and it's like, so I finally did it. I remember thinking, "Oh my god, this is so much fucking better now," and the clients are being looked better, looked after better. But I can totally relate to how you want to keep some. Like I've got the yeah. same rule. It's like my my limit was meant to be ten. I've now pushed it to fifteen clients. <laughs> <laughs> I can work with but there's something about like your passion where you just still have to keep doing those little things because it's not the same too, you know if you're going to talk if, if i'm going to have hundreds of pts working i need to know what they're going through and i need to be doing it myself it's an important totally. spiritual piece with them to show that i do it too like we're all, we're all doing this and i want to be working on the coal face working with i want to get to a point where there's no one in australia that we can't train not a single person there is no barrier at all like we're, we're working from lower needs, working our way up to higher needs because, of course, you would. And I want to always be on the vanguard, the very front of that, working with and bringing people on and testing things out myself in our innovation lab or whatever to, to work that out. I want to lead that charge. And I, I, it's really important and meaningful to me that we're able to do that and I'm able to do that. But, yeah, it's, it's probably an ego thing for me as well. Like I have to accept that there's probably going to be a lot of PTs who are better at this than I am and I need to let them loose and work with those clients and not everyone is going to love me either. You know, I've, you've just got to accept it. But I think it's sort of like the floodgates. Once you let go of a little bit, of, it's easy to get a little bit of more and it just flows out of you. You just got to make that little bit. I'm bringing just, on just on your ego adjustments, huh? Yeah. I'm bringing on my first PT like in the next few days kind of thing and that's going to be the hard and it'll get easier and easier and easier with every subsequent PT. And I'll probably get to a point where I love the fact that I don't have to work with all those clients. But, you know, I, I need to be doing some work at all times, definitely. It's just okay. the best, man. Like I was training one guy. He's only, he's only done his second ever PT session with me and, and ever, you know, and he's already doubling his output in one session and he loved it and he's laughing. But he's also, you know, in our first session, he was literally casting freezing spells on me and I had to freeze, wait for him to unfreeze me and then keep the workout rolling the entire time. <laughs> so I was like, you just don't get that with normal cl- You just don't get that with your neurotypical clients. Fucking awesome. Like it's so much more interesting and fun. And the guy's just laughing his ass off. And I'm like, this is joy. 
this is exercise and joy hand in hand. It's not me getting him to do the most insane workouts, you know, like triple burpee backflip bullshit. Like it's just good old-fashioned exercise, fun, companionship, getting amongst it and showing people that exercise isn't always that intense suffering. It can be joyful and fun and easy, you know. Like my, my training partner, a, a young woman with Down syndrome, like we have dance parties on Thursday morning for our workouts. So fun, really hard, <laughs> but a lot of fun. Uh, and that's the joy that I want to bring and I want to make sure Weflex keeps. Keeps that level of, of joy and happiness. Yeah, what's the yeah. point? You know what I mean? Like, like not everyone wants to suffer in the gym. Some people just I don't think many people do, man. That's one thing I learned from our guys is that like a lot of guys come to us for fat loss and whatnot, but the thing that actually ends up being the most important is having a direction, having purpose, having happiness, having connection. Like those are the things that we really want at the end of the day. Yeah, but dude, the marketing doesn't reflect that. Half the time it's just like people straining or screaming, you know, in their hit class or whatever. Like it's so intense. You know, I'm at a point where I almost don't want to go in there if that's the marketing. If I saw gym marketing and I was completely cold, I had no idea and saw it, it doesn't look like a fun place. I don't yeah. not market it as super fun that often or not yeah. often enough in my view. Very rarely. And look, I can totally get like the one side of the performance, like having been and done what I do and even doing what I do now. Like I love fucking belting the shit out of myself. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. I enjoy that. But yeah, there's definitely a time where it has to be, the, you know, the thing I enjoy the most about like lifting where I lift now is that there's community and there's people around and but, there's something really cool about that. And going hard and having fun aren't exclusive to each other. You know, you can have a lot of fun while kicking your own ass and kicking other people's asses. It's so much fun to do it that way, you know, and, and it builds camaraderie and it makes you enjoy the workout. And that's what I want to keep and what we will keep. But for me, I'm really into, I love my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and mm -hmm. really missing that at the moment. And, you know, it's, we're literally trying to kill each other and choke each other out, but I just can't stop giggling the entire time because it's just so funny. Like it's genuinely enjoyable when you're just whispering shit into each other's ears or we're sweet nothings <laughs> just to make them uncomfortable and then rolling around like it's great fun and and i think it's really important to me especially when we're trying to build behavior change for people who have no exposure to exercise and fitness we want to create the the relationship and the the note that exercise and gyms are good fun places it's a fun it's it's a good time you'd like doing this not time to pay your weekly penance, you know what I mean? To the totally. Yeah, it's completely bullcrap. So. so so with the with the PDs, because like I think uh, probably out of a couple of, out of this, there may be one or two guys who are interested in like becoming a PT and joining Reflex. Okay. Like how what's the go? Like how do they reach out to you? Reflex.com.au and you can register your interest. What I'll say and what's really interesting is is that what makes a good Reflex PT isn't necessarily what you and me would look for in a PT in a sense. So you and me might want to find someone who's technically very capable. We'll go to them with specific problems or questions or things that we want to achieve. People with the most of the clients we're getting on at the moment, you know, they're coming in with zero to little fitness. Really, we need someone who's got patience, adaptability, the ability to make it fun and the ability to make it very simple. And someone who wants to be in this for the long game, you know what I mean? We're not a 30 days to shred type of shenanigans here. We're an organisation that wants to build relationships and build in habits and routines and rituals that they can use for the rest of their lives to get fit. So we did a co-design session with five people with disabilities who exercise and we asked, what are the qualities you want in a PT? Like, what do you want? And the, the, the three biggest answers, like the most overwhelming response we had is patience, adaptability and fun. You have to be those three things. You don't need to be technically capable. 
I'm working out with guys at the moment with no equipment. We're just doing simple squats and chairs. We're just literally moving arms around because they don't do it that much. I'm going to send them out some bands. Like it's incredibly basic stuff, but you've got to find a way to adapt to be patient because they might learn slower. They might talk slower. They might take a long time between transitions. They might buck a little bit and not want to do certain things. At that time, in that moment, you've got to adapt and just flow with it. Keep it fun. Keep it engaging. You know what I mean? And understand that if they're not paying attention to you, it's not because they're rude. You know what I mean? It's because it can be hard for them to do so. So if you're a PT and you're patient, you're passionate, you don't have to know anything about disability. We'll take care of that. But if you've got those right soft skills and you're just willing to come down into someone else's world and work within that, you will have the best experience of your life professionally. I can guarantee that. That's dope, man. So weflex.com.au. That's it. Send us an expression of interest and I'll call you myself and talk to you about it. Perfect. And if there's someone here who wants to, who knows someone who is a potential flexer and uh, yeah. and wants to come on and join the athletes team, is the same deal? Exactly. Like- process expressions of interest for me is open. And we're all flexors, mate. So not just our clients, but our PTs, we're all flexors together. We're all flexors together. I love that, man. So, yeah. dude, thank you so much for your time. This has been fucking awesome. No, thank you. I appreciate everything, James. My pleasure, man. I'll speak to you soon. Take care, brother. I hope you enjoyed the video. If you got something out of it and you want to learn more, click the link below or type in High Performance Conversations with James Can, and you'll be able to check out all the podcasts that we've done. We cover a stack of different topics, everything from getting your mojo back, overcoming anxiety, self-doubt, self-esteem, and learning from some of the industries and some of the world's top performers in both business and in health. Look forward to having you on there.